back to Costume Drama Rewind, where we've learned the best way to plan a top-secret mission that will determine the course of an entire war is to talk about all the details in crowded nightclubs where secret agent bartenders can overhear you. I just assume all bartenders are secret agents. <laughs> well, today's film is Operation Mincemeat, which came out in 2021. It's directed by John Madden, and it stars like every single prestige British actor, including Colin Firth, Matthew McFadden, Penelope Wilton, Kelly McDonald, and Jason Isaacs, a.k.a. Lucius Malfoy, a.k.a. the next Mr. Laura Skog. A.k.a. Bannister Tarleton. Best, best name, name ever. ever. It's okay. So first, a quick synopsis. It's early 1943, and the British government's 20 committee, one of their counterintelligence operations, is looking to throw a blind on their plan to invade the island of Sicily. One member of the committee, Charles Chumley, tosses out the idea of planting a fake letter pointing to an invasion of Greece on a dead body, and then allowing the body to wash up on the Spanish coast where German spies would be sure to get hold of the document. Another member of the committee, Ewan Montague, catches his enthusiasm and joins the plan over the objections of Admiral John Godfrey, the director of naval intelligence, who's pretty much a wet blanket for this whole film. <laughs> they manage to secure the unclaimed corpse of Glendor Michael, a man who had been living on the streets of London, and they set to work giving him a new identity. He becomes Major William Bill Martin of the Royal Marines, which is also deeply freaky to me because I have an uncle named William Martin. But over the next three months, they give him a backstory and a personality, including a fiancé, love letters, photos, personal effects. They prepare the key documents he'll carry with him, and they plan for as many contingencies as humanly possible. They're joined in this by Ewan's longtime secretary, Hester, and by Jean Leslie, a young widow working for MI5, who both Charles and Ewan fall for and fight over. Their partnership is also complicated by the presence of Ewan's brother, Ivor, who British intelligence believe may be a Russian spy. Despite these complications, they manage to prepare the body and deliver it by submarine to their targeted spot along the Spanish coast. Major Martin is picked up by local officials, the trap works, the invasion of Sicily succeeds, and Montague, Chumley, and team celebrate a job well done. So, first impressions of Operation Mincemeat. Because I'm a nerd, I had to do my background reading first. A friend recommended Ewan Montague's account, The Man Who Never Was. I read it, and then I went ahead and read Ben McIntyre's book, Operation Mincemeat, which the film is based on. The British government didn't allow Ewan to release all the details behind the mission in his book, but more info has been released to the public since then, so you gotta read McIntyre's book to get the full story. Anyways, because his book has so much fascinating information, I just got really annoyed by all the changes they made in this. So I think like they need to do a mini-series to make it work. Picture it. Sicily, 1943. You gotta be a little bit impressed that I worked Golden Girls reference in here. Tiny bit. Actually picture it. London, February 2020. I'm on my honeymoon. It is off-season, and it is cold, and it is a Sunday night, and therefore, husband and I are the only two people who show up for our ghost tour with London Walks throughout the oldest parts of the city. And if there had been a big group, this story probably would have been impossible, but as it stands, it's just me, husband, and our guide, who is known on the London Walks website as the Thinking Woman's Trumpet. That's a story for another day. We're traipsing through the city, and he decides that he's going to take us to some pub where Charles Dickens used to go and drink a lot of gin and therefore see spirits. I'm sure there's no relationship between those two. He's going to take us through this little rabbit warren of alleys and side streets to get there. And we duck behind the church of St. Peter upon Cornhill into this little central garden that we're going to cut through to get to the pub. And we walk into the garden we stopped at. 
because there are a bunch of people in World War II clothing standing in front of us. My first thought is, oh, holy shit, we've just walked into a ghost store. Completely, like, justifiable reaction. And then we realize, ten seconds later, oh, there are boom mics and the clacker and, like, grumpy production assistants standing around holding coffee. And we realize we've just walked onto a film set of some kind. Don't know what. So we're very quietly backing out, trying hard not to get arrested by the Metropolitan Police. And our guide asks a bored extra, you know, what's going on here? And the guide says, oh, it's some World War II thing. So we get back to our hotel and decide to look up City of London filming permits for that week. And there's just one that's filming, and it's a movie called Operation Mincemeat, which we have therefore been watching for this movie since February 2020. We followed the IMDb page as it got a release date that got pushed back, and another release date that got cancelled, and we have been waiting all this time for this movie, like, drip-feeding information about it, hoping desperately that, it'll some that it will someday actually come out, and finally, we got to watch it this past spring and learned that I was, in fact, not ten feet away from one or both of the Mr. Darcy's, <laughs> but I was on my honeymoon, so it would have been inappropriate to do anything about it. Fail to see why. So that is my first impression of Operation Mincemeat. Know that I'm going into this having been waiting a very long time for this movie and therefore probably could not have possibly lived up to my expectations. But with that, let's get down to the heart of the matter. In preparing for this episode, we both read you and Montague's book. Now, I ended up watching the movie twice, once before reading the book and once after. And what struck me the most is that the historical details of the operation itself that are included in the movie are really, really, like, scarily bang-on accurate. The first time I watched, I actually thought it was a little hokey that the movie spends so much time on them talking back and forth about the little details of Major Martin's character as though he were a real person. In fact, Montague says in the book, that's exactly what they did. He writes that they discussed him, quote, rather as if we were pulling a friend to pieces behind his back. Love the commitment to gossip, Montague. <laughs> we talked about him until we did feel that he was an old friend whom we had known for years. The book also includes details of what's called wallet litter, or all the other random stuff he was carrying with him to make him a fully realized person. The movie focuses on the most straightforward of these. The letter revealing the plan, a love letter from his fake fiancée. But he was also carrying several other letters from various officers and diplomats to provide additional backup for the story. One of these was from Lord Lewis Mountbatten, best known to contemporary audiences as the uncle of the late Duke of Edinburgh. He had some other personal letters on him as well, including one from his father about the upcoming marriage, and one from his father's lawyer about financial arrangements for the marriage. They really committed. Something I thought was really cool that's in Montague's book, they actually got a branch manager from Lloyd's of London, the bank, to put together the overdraft letter that Martin had on his person, and they weren't sure how to ask for this fake overdraft letter <laughs> without, you know, creating too many questions and causing people to talk. So the cover story they came up for that that there was a spy in London who was showing too much interest in the financial affairs of various British officers, and they needed this document to try and draw that guy out. So there's backstories on backstories for everything that they put together, and it just, the level of details, nuts. Yeah, read the McIntyre book for even more information on this. It's amazing. 
So this also wasn't mentioned in the movie, but I found it interesting that they took pains to present Major Martin as a Roman Catholic. They marked it on his military identity card, and they also gave him a silver cross around his neck and a St. Christopher medal to carry. And they thought that this obvious show of Catholicism would help deter the Spanish, who obviously tend to be more Catholic than the average bear, because bears aren't Catholic, from conducting too thorough an autopsy. And in the end, it wasn't so much these markers of religion that convinced the coroner to cut short the process and declare Major Martin to just have died of drowning. It was just the heat and the smell <laughs> from this many weeks old corpse. Ewan's brother, Ivor, was in fact suspected of espionage, chiefly because British intelligence found his obsession with the international ping pong scene to be so eccentric, they figured it had to be a cover for something else. That's defensible, and also now I'm afraid what they would think of all my hobbies. And your Google search history. (laughs) (laughs) He was recruited by the Russians, but he was apparently too much of an oddball to be of that much use. He and his brother did have a cheese club at Cambridge, though, and I want to join. And finally, while the end of the movie does a fantastic job creating tension, as the invasion of Sicily gets underway in mid-July and the gang waits for news with bated breath, in reality, they actually knew by mid-May that the Germans had taken the bait, and they cabled the message, mincemeat swallowed whole to Churchill on May 13th while he was in Washington, D.C., meeting with President Roosevelt. During the movie, our heroes talk about the shadowy Lieutenant Colonel Alexis Van Runna, one of Hitler's top intelligence personnel, who may or may not actually want the Nazis to fail. British intelligence wouldn't have known this at the time, but historians think it was very possible that Van Runna was working to foil Hitler's plans. Based on the access he had to accurate information, it's likely he knew that the Operation Mincemeat plans, along with those for the Normandy invasion, were fake, but deliberately encouraged Hitler to think they were the real thing. He also knowingly inflated the number of Allied troops in reports. And Montague even mentions in his book that, wow, we really had the German intelligence hoodwinked because there were a number of times where they thought that we had many more, the Allies had many more troops than we actually had. So it's interesting how that, how Von Rona was interpreted by the Allies. Von Rona was connected to many of the people who plotted to assassinate Hitler in July 1944, and because of that, he was tried and executed on October 12th that year. His intentions and personal thoughts are just as much of a mystery as they're depicted in the movie. During his trial, he merely stated that the Nazi government and its policies were inconsistent with Christianity. But there are other stories about German intelligence that I wish had made it into the movie, because they are absolutely bananas. The main German attempt to establish a spy network in the UK, Operation Lena, failed, but to a greater extent than the Germans realized. These spies that they sent were basically all arrested upon arrival or committed suicide, and some of those who got arrested started working as double agents for the Allied forces. <laughs> also, in the movie, we see parts of what the 20 committee gets up to, but their operations are broader. Basically, they helped build out this entire bogus spy network for Germany that was so large they had to kill off some fake spies every few months. This <laughs> sounds like a sitcom. <laughs> they should make it so, uh, Hollywood, get out of this! One of the people involved was Juan Pohl, codenamed Garbo. Because of the Spanish Civil War, he grew to hate totalitarianism, and he wanted to help the Allied powers. When he couldn't get the British to hire him as a spy, he got creative and convinced Kulenthal, the 
German Jewish spymaster we see in the movie, that he was a fascist Spanish government official working in London and could spy for them. <laughs> He's committed. <laughs> <laughs> he got to work sending dispatches that were supposedly coming out of the UK while he was still in Portugal. And he was doing this with minimal resources. Basically, he had like a few tourist guides to the UK and a few magazines. So basically, he's the MacGyver of (laughs) World War II intelligence. And he's like sending all these flowery, over-the-top messages with all these crazy, inaccurate facts about the UK that the Germans still bought. (laughs) Eventually, he did join forces with British intelligence. And with their help, he created like almost 30 fake spies, fake backgrounds, fake personalities, such as Venezuelan foreign exchange students, South African trust fund babies, and Welsh white supremacists. Professor Plum in a library with a lead pipe. <laughs> All spying for Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> to build their trust, what he first did was sent real information about the 1942 North African landings, but he timed it to arrive just too late. From there, he started passing along bogus information that the Germans believed such as incorrect information about when and where the Allied forces would land in 1944, namely that the Normandy landing was a ruse and that the Allies' main target was Pas de Calais. The Nazis continued to keep troops at Pas de Calais well into the summer of 1944 to prepare against this Allied threat, and Hitler even awarded Garbo the Iron Cross. After World War II, Behold moved to Venezuela, and he led a quiet life until his death in 1988. You know, Montague's book, while short, includes a lot of interesting wisdom about running intelligence operations and planting convincing counterintelligence. And he talks about how the most effective counterintelligence includes seeds of information that your enemy does know to be true. And that builds trust. But Mincemeat is a movie about a spy operation, but it's also a movie about getting things done within a bureaucracy. And toward the end of Montague's book, he shared something that I personally found hilarious. Of course, when Major Martin was killed, his name was included on official published casualty lists, so they didn't give the game away if and when German intelligence decided to double check. So in the weeks following Major Martin's death, Montague received phone calls from the Naval Wills Department, checking on whether Major Martin had left anything behind concerning his heirs, and then also the department in charge of collecting vital statistics for fallen soldiers, wanting to find out how the Major had died, so you know they made sure all their numbers were accurate. Bureaucrats gonna bureaucrat. So now we come to the big question. How many naval caps are we awarding to Operation Mincemeat? After our delightful discussion about all this, I am so sorry, but this movie felt weird. I whiffed it again. Oh. <laughs> so the real Operation Mincemeat, it's one of the most fascinating, improbable, thrilling tales of espionage in all of world history. But it feels like the director didn't think this would be captivating enough to engage the audience, and so it like, scrambled to make up extra gimmicks. Hence why we have that painful love triangle the fake strains in the Montague marriage, making Admiral Godfrey this really angry antagonist who hates the plan. And that might just be because Lucius Malfoy, a.k.a. I didn't even call him by his right name. Jason Isaacs is always at his best when he's angry. And his most beautiful. Down girl. (laughs) Uh, Also, Chumley being pressured to spy on Ewan, which never happened. This bogus inclusion about Gene bargaining for a place in the operation, then getting threatened by a purported anti-Hitler German spy, Ian Fleming's continuing narrative about stories. But then, like, on the flip side, they cram tons of real information into either the dialogue, like Kulenthal's Jewish roots, Von Rana's loyalties, stuff that they would not have known at the time, and mentioning the Montague Brothers Cheese Club... Or, like, stuff literally in the background, like showing Adolf Klaus's butterfly collection on the wall, 
It's just this very weird imbalance of how they handled the information, and I don't think it worked. So I'm going to go with 1.5 naval caps, and part of that is me being generous because I liked recognizing some of the filming locations. Sorry. I get it. In part because I waited for this movie for so, so long. This movie was my touchstone in the dark days of the pandemic. You kept telling me about it. I just have to get through this so I can watch Mincemeat. I wanted it to be so much better than it was. I fundamentally do not understand the decision that you have this event that is fascinating and compelling and exciting and dramatic on its own, and then you're like, you know what it needs? A couple of dudes fighting over a chick. I did think it was a fun detail in Montague's book that they all fell into the habit of joking about him and Jean as Bill and Pam, but I wish the movie had left a joke a joke. And I actually did like having Ian Fleming pop up in the background from time to time. He was working as Godfrey's personal assistant during this time, with frankly very few qualifications for doing so. (laughs) It's claimed that Godfrey inspired the Bond character of M, but we know how I love just a random narrative framing device, and maybe I'm just feeling a little tenderhearted about the whole James Bond franchise, because poor James Bond, for the first time ever, is no longer working for Her Majesty's Secret Service, But I thought that was kind of a cool little wink. And also for the audience, Ian Fleming gets to kind of be the audience stand-in through the movie, I felt like. He's that familiar character who keeps popping up. And you know he's going to write about this. But I think I would have to give the movie a four for the history, which is so, so good, as even you admit. And then like a one for the tedious personal drama that keeps distracting you from the really cool stuff. So I think that averages to what? Two and a half naval caps? Math. No one told me there'd be math. But finally, we come to a few sundry other notes. During the film, Chumley drops a few disparaging comments about being surrounded by riders during Operation Mincemeat. And in real life, this was the case. British intelligence efforts were definitely inspired by thrillers and detective books, and those working in British intelligence also went on to write mysteries and spy novels. In the movie, we get Ian Fleming saying that he was inspired by Basil Thompson's Milliner's Hat Mystery, which is true. In the story, they find a dead body that's been dumped in a barn, but it turns out all the IDs and documents he has on them are fake. John Masterman, who Jean Leslie mentions and who's involved in the 20 Committee, wrote An Oxford Tragedy, which helped establish Oxford University as a common setting for British murder mysteries, aka 95% of what PBS shows. <laughs> They'd be lost without them. <laughs> They'd have to close. Supposedly, Ian Fleming's character, Jill Masterson, in his 1959 book, Goldfinger, is named after Masterman. And there were plenty of other writers who served in British intelligence over the years, including John Le Carre, Frederick Forsyth, John Buchan, Somerset Maugham, Maugham, however you say it, Graham Greene, who based his book, Our Man in Havana, on Garbo's fake spying. Roald Dahl and C.S. Forrester, and then Muriel Spark, who also worked with the political warfare executive writing propaganda to spread in Axis countries, used this experience with creating fake news and military intelligence in her 1988 A Far Cry from Kensington, where the shadowy organizers terrorize one character. So it's mentioned in both the movie and in Montague's book that one reason why the Spanish and the Germans were willing to give credence to just our random body washing up on shore is that several Allied planes crashed in that part of the ocean around the same time. One of them carried British film star Leslie Howard, 
who was active in Allied propaganda efforts and probably in some covert intelligence work. Leslie Howard, of course, acted in numerous costume dramas and period pieces during his career, including The Scarlet Pimpernel, Pygmalion, and most famously as Ashley Wilkes in Gone with the Wind. Since his death, some historians have found evidence that both the British High Command and Howard himself knew that his plane was to be targeted and that it was sacrificed to prevent Germany from realizing that the Enigma Code had been cracked. That's horrible. I know. I get very emotional whenever I think of it. If you've walked around central London, chances are you've stumbled onto some of the filming locations for the movie, but I want to highlight just a few. The place we see the most of is Somerset House. Its interiors serve as the base of operations, and then they use the exteriors for a lot of outside conversation scenes where they're just dropping all these top-secret details all (laughs) over the place. As one does. (laughs) Thomas Seymour, the Duke of Somerset, Edward VI's power-hungry uncle, built a mansion along the Strand in central London in the 1500s. It got refurbished a lot throughout the years. It's been used for tons of different government offices. Now it's a mix of private and public use. The current building is this huge marble affair. And most importantly, you can go ice skiing there in the courtyard in the winter. That's in love, actually. Historic dockyard Chatham in Kent was used for the Scottish submarine base. Exactly what it sounds like. Mm. A historic dockyard that has all sorts of cool programs and exhibits about naval history. Von Rona's scenes were filmed at the Reform Club on Pall Mall. This is a private club that was formed by supporters of the 1832 Reform Bill. We'll probably be seeing it again since a lot of period dramas are filmed there. Also, not a filming location, as the place has been closed for years, but the Gargoyle Club really was a schwanky, artsy nightclub that Montague and Chumley used for playing the mission. The McIntyre book says that they weren't too worried about German spies catching on to the plot because they were essentially the German spies <laughs> operating in the UK. But I thought it was interesting that another member of the club was Guy Burgess, a communist spy. And finally, you'll never see it on Wikipedia or IMDb, but now you know that if you go into the little public garden behind the Church of St. Peter upon Cornhill, there was some stuff filmed there. You are welcome. (laughs) So finally, where have I seen that guy before? We have quite a few actors making their second appearance on the podcast. Colin Firth, of course, was in 1917 playing General Aaron Moore for, like, five minutes. (laughs) Easiest payday ever. Kelly McDonald was in Gosford Park playing a member of the household staff. Jason Isaacs was in The Patriot as Colonel Tavington, a.k.a. Bannister Tarleton. Best best name name ever. Heidi Morahan and Paul Ritter both show up in the Bletchley Circle. Liam Edwards and Richard Price both play background extras, soldiers, in 1917, and finally Chris Wilson is an amazing grace playing a member of parliament. This dude has over 450 films as a professional extra under his belt. Best job ever. Indeed. <laughs> Thanks for joining us while we carved deep into Operation Mincemeat. But um, Join us next time as we celebrate spooky October with a classic Halloween tale that has some interesting history. Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow. This is Costume Drama Rewind. Thanks for listening.